Sports Ethos New York Knicks Podcast. I'm going Caliber. Let's take lead. I'm telling you, I was at the garden next to my wife on Friday. The garden was bonkers. And for someone who's been a Knicks fan for a long time, I haven't seen a whole lot of playoff games in the last 20 years around here. But the Garden has, I don't care what anyone says, all right? I've been here too. The Garden has the bad habit of being too quiet when there's nothing going on. If If the Knicks are struggling or there's no, you know, the big plays are not happening or the Knicks are... Losing the Knicks started losing significantly. I think the crowd would have started getting quiet because that's been the habit of the Garden crowd, even in the playoffs. When the Knicks are on a run and big plays are being made, the Garden is bonkers. It's bonkers. Game three, and from what I can tell on TV, in game four, the Garden was bonkers from start to finish. They didn't just wait for big plays. From start to finish. And you can't tell me. I don't care who says it. Mitchell Robinson said the Cavs were shook by him coming into the paint. I don't think that's the case. But you can't convince me the Cavs were not a little bit shell-shocked. Because you heard him talk about it just a little bit. You heard Donovan, who's from New York, talk about the Garden being different. It's just a whole nother energy. I don't know why it's different. And some arenas pipe in crowd noise. I don't think people realize that. So it's a lot of white noise. You kind of get used to white noise. That's why people play white noise to go to sleep. <laughs> but of course you have some loud arenas. Golden State has been loud since the new arena. They haven't been quite as loud because the tickets are more expensive. But that's usually the reason why the Knicks, the MSG isn't isn't really loud. It's because the tickets are very expensive and you don't kind you kind of don't get that average fan uh, very much. But now, they are damn near throwing a parade outside the garden. Game three and four. They blocked 7th Avenue, cheering, chanting F. Trey Young. It's silly out here. It's silly out here. And you can criticize the fans, oh, you want, oh, you ever want anything. Shut up. They're having a good time. Some of it is a little bit embarrassing, but you know what? This is who they are. This is who they are now. And you'd rather it be this way than the way it kind of is sometimes, especially in the regular season, where it's just like you can hear a mouse fart in the garden sometimes, unless something's happening. These guys were lit. These crowds were lit from beginning to end. If you can't tell me it did not help the Knicks. The players said it. They said it. It helped them. Because sometimes... Energy gets low, confidence gets low, the other team's on on a little run, and the crowd helps it build you up. And R.J. referenced that directly in the third quarter when the Cavs made their run. R.J. said the crowd helped. helped. And a lot of times the crowd doesn't necessarily hurt the other team, but it helps the home team. I think that's something that people miss. I used to have this debate with my father sometimes because my father, he played overseas for the Air Force he used to say, do you really think the crowd is bothering these professional players? They're not bothered by the crowd. And I would say I don't necessarily think the players are bothered. I think the players are helped. They're elevated. And you've heard a lot of NBA players make that claim. They talk about the bench players, the, the, the supplemental players play better at home. I think stats back that up. But I think it helps everybody. It, it lifts your spirits instead of Instead of you getting down in the doldrums and being a little bit tight and nervous, which tends to happen to Nick players sometimes when they're playing in the quiet garden, now you know these guys, they got your back. And I think it helps. And you can't tell me it didn't help the Knicks. And because the Knicks crowd was so nuts and bonkers, you had this Cavalier team that had a bunch of young players. I think they were a little bit shook. Like, what? This, this is crazy. This is crazy. And you you heard J.B. Bickerstaff say that they couldn't hear their defensive switches, which which hurt them in game three. I'm sure they made adjustments in game four. I didn't hear them mention it after game four. But after game three, they couldn't, they couldn't call their switches out. 
you know, and, and when that tends to happen, when you know people can't hear you, then you stop communicating. And communication is is key in the NBA defensively. These guys are communicating all the time. At least the good teams are. And when you don't hear a lot of communication on defense from a team, they're not in a good spot. And, and if that's a habit, that's not a good team usually. So they couldn't even call out their defensive uh, calls. They couldn't make their defensive calls because the crowd was so loud. You can't, you can't tell me, you can't tell me these Knicks fans did not bring it. And I think I mentioned this early in the year about how home court hasn't been an advantage for the Knicks in the regular season when they haven't been in the playoffs that much. In the regular season, because guys come here and they want to put on a show, and some guys are built for it. And I think Donovan's built for it. To be honest with you, we can talk about Donovan in a minute, even though he didn't play well. Some guys are built for it. They want to quiet that crowd. But when the crowd is already prone to being quiet, it's a lot easier task. But this team, this this crowd, these crowds came out, and they gave it all you got. And you know what? Nobody's talking about it. You got to give the Garden credit, too. Because the Garden, all game long, did all kinds of different call and responses. All kinds of chants. He did the defense organs every single possession. Every single possession. Not just a big possession, not just here and there. Every single possession. They treated it like it was the fourth quarter with a defense chance. And on offense, they, they call and response, let's go Knicks. Any, anything they could think of, the, the, the chance, uh, anything, anything. Anything they could think of to get the crowd screaming and yelling. They did it. They prompted it. Got to give them credit because they knew they didn't play like that whole fuddy-duddy thing where, oh, we don't need to do that for our fans. Nah, they knew they needed help. They needed to get these, this crowd going. They needed to get them going the whole time, and they did. And the players responded, and, and I can't say it enough. It was nice being a Knicks fan, game three and game four. It was nice being there. Seventh Avenue was lit after the game. Guys acting crazy, not violent or anything, but but just very New York. In the middle of the street, everybody's having a good time. Everybody's happy. I don't care if other fan bases are clowning the Knicks because they're not used to winning. And when you're in the playoffs all the time, you don't act like that after a playoff win. Well, the Knicks are not in the playoff all the time. So that's it. You're not, you're not saying nothing by saying the Knicks are never in the playoffs. That's why their fans are acting like that. Okay. Yeah, that, that's you're right. You, you got it. You called it. And if the Knicks are perennial playoff teams, then you probably won't see this after every game. Or you might see it after every game because it's fun and because they've now earned this reputation. Now you can just search Knicks on Twitter and you're going to see crowds of people hanging outside the garden just doing F. Trey Young chants, which is hilarious to me. Just random, just random smoke. And listen, I'm sure he loves the attention. He wants to be the villain. You're welcome. That's what it looks like. But this Cavs series, 3-1, like I said, the Knicks had a puncher's chance in the series. Some people picked the Knicks in the series. Nobody picked the Knicks to be up 3-1. Nobody. And the series is not over. I'm cautioning everybody right now. I don't care, 95%. I don't care. Most of that 5% of teams that won, well, just to be clear, 95% of the teams that have been up 3-1 have won the series. But a lot of those 5%, that one, is has been in the last 15, 20 years. So when I was a kid growing up, I would see teams down 3-1, and everyone would talk like the series was over. And I was like, why? That team is down 3-1. They're, they're going home. Once they're down 3-2, what's the percentages? What's the win percentages when you're down 3-2? Is it still 95%? No. <laughs> why do you – why do we constantly – Go back to the fact that you were down 3-1 once you're down 3-2. It doesn't matter that you were down 3-1 anymore once you're down 3-2. All that matters is the next game. And I think two things have happened in recent years, or three really. I think players years ago saw 3-1 and heard 3-1 was over and treated it as such. Started making vacation plans. Because everyone told them the series was over, so they didn't even try it. It's almost like the four-minute mile. Nobody thought they could do it until the guy did it, and then everyone started doing it. Once somebody came back from 3-1, it was like, oh, you, you can do this? I think another reason 
most of the time when a team is up 3-1, it's because they're substantially better than the other team. But sometimes that's not the case, especially in a, in a season like uh, 2023 where there's so much parity in the league and so many evenly matched teams. Sometimes you can be 3-1 just out of circumstance. You can, and, and the Knicks, people act like the Knicks have dominated the Cavs. They have not dominated the Cavs. Even in game three where they had a nice little lead by the end of the game, it was like a 15, 16-point game, game with, seven, with seven minutes to go. And I I know some of you are rookie fans, so you're like, well, that's a big league. No, it's not a big league. <laughs> no, it's not. not. In, in less than a minute, that's that's under 10. That could be under 10. That's, you're still nervous as a fan with a 15, 16-point lead with, with seven minutes to go. That game, that entire game, the Knicks kind of just built, 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 slowly, slowly, slowly built a lead and held on to it throughout the rest of the game. It wasn't a dominant performance. That game was kind of... It was kind of nerve wracking. Neither neither team could score, so you knew you know you know the Cavs have a player that ultimately when he gets lit, nobody can stop him, and he's a prolific scorer. So, in a game where you're struggling to score and you have a great score on the other on the other side, you up 16 points with seven minutes to go. You can't feel comfortable, and that wasn't the lead the whole whole game. The Knicks haven't dominated this series. They have out-executed the Cavs by a hair, by enough of a hair to win these games. So the way I see it is the Cavs end up turning that around, making a couple negative possessions into positive possessions, especially at home. This is a 3-2 series and all the pressure is on the Knicks in game six. All of it. So stop acting like this series is over. It's not. The Knicks got to take care of business. The players themselves, I think, understand that. But the Knicks have not played perfectly, and they have they have injuries they're dealing with with Quentin Grimes. You have guys like IQ that are not giving you anything offensively. You have guys like Randall that aren't giving you anything offensively. And then you had RJ who couldn't who was nowhere to be found in the first two games of the series. And you gotta give RJ credit, and we're gonna talk about him in a minute. But Knicks being up three one, you can you couldn't ask for a better position to be in, but please understand that the series is not over. I'm seeing people talking about the Knicks gonna make it to the finals because Giannis is hurt. Can y'all stop? Can they can they just finish this series first? Like Donovan was a little emotional after the game, but not because simply because they lost the game, but because he felt like he let his team down. He let his team down. He didn't play well. Didn't play well at all in the game. And if Donovan has a normal Donovan game, then maybe they win that game. It's not like they took the ball out of his hands a ton. They did. They blitzed him, took the ball out of his hands a lot. But Donovan also took shots that he normally takes and and makes and didn't make them. He makes those shots. The game turns around because the Knicks aren't necessarily playing great. So I'm just one who believes that this can turn around just as quickly as it's turned for the Knicks again. Because like I was saying earlier about being down 3-1, a lot of times it's because the team is much better than the other team. That's not the case here. The, The Knicks might be better than the Cavs, but they're not so much better than the Cavs. They're not 3-1 better than the Cavs, not necessarily, even though literally they are. They've won six out of eight games this season. But but practically, if you're going to be honest about it, you wouldn't say the Knicks are necessarily a dominant team over the Cavs. They're in the same kind, they're on the same kind of plane. Right? So in that in that situation, that's different than a lot of three-one leads where the other team is just dominant over the other. This is more circumstantial. So so the teams themselves, the team that's down. They understand that. Hey, if we make a little few less mistakes, if we knock, the, knock down these shots that we've been getting, that we know we can knock down, all we got to do is X, Y, Z, and, and maybe we win a game. And once you win that first game at home, once you win game five, the pressure's on the Knicks. And I thought that way when LeBron came back on Golden State. It was like, hey, all they, all they have to do is win – that road game, that game five, just win game five. Because once you get home in game six, that's a chance for you to turn the series around. Because game seven is a whole different thing. Nobody's, think, nobody's thinking about being down 3-1 when you're playing game seven. Like, this is all this a lot of narrative and talky talk. 3-1 doesn't matter once you get to game seven. It's about game five and six. Can you win game five and six? One of those games is in Cleveland. And then they have to worry about beating the Knicks at the Garden which they have not been very far from doing. I'm not saying 
they've been a minute left. I mean, listen, it was only a couple minutes left in the game last night. Knicks had like an eight, six to eight point lead. And it was a little, you know, they had to make plays to win that game. It's not like the Cavs are getting blown out by 50 points every time they come to the garden. Okay. You don't want to come back to the garden and have all that pressure on the Knicks to win that game. And to the Knicks credit, there was pressure on them to win three and four. Frankly, you, it, there's always pressure for you to win at home. I don't care what anyone says. There's always a little bit of pressure. So they responded well in game three and four. But game six, with it all on the line, or you got to go to game seven in Cleveland with a 3-1 lead, I'm telling you, things are going to get tight. They're going to get tight in that garden. That garden's going to be tight in that game six. You want to win game five. You want to buck all of this nonsense about being up 3-1 and 95%. Like, all of that nonsense is just talk. It's not real. What's real is that if you lose game five, the pressure's on you to win game six. Because game seven doesn't matter. When I say it doesn't matter, I mean 3-1 doesn't matter when game seven happens. That's what I should say. I don't want nobody to clip that and quote me and, and make me sound stupid. Game seven, game seven is his own entity. It's just, once you get to game seven and you game seven on the road, it don't matter you up 3-1. It don't matter. All right? You, have, you are now in a position where you can make history as being one of the few teams that have lost by after being up 3-1. And with all of this good cheer and all that stuff that the Knicks are getting right now, all this good press, all this nice talk, they're going to turn on you so fast. They're going to turn on you so, so fast if you gotta, if you got to play a game seven and you lose. It would be... It would be a classic embarrassment. And that's why I'm glad this team has players like Josh Hart and Jalen Brunson who are just solid basketball guys. We're talking about just being solid. They're solid basketball guys. They have solid game theories. And guys like that, they help you win these big games. Because guys like Jalen, I'm sorry, uh, Julius Julius Randle, they too sometimes need to win these games. You need guys who are solid. Even IQ, too sometimes. His defense, once again, tremendous. But you don't know what you're getting with him on offense. That's sometimes he. Josh Hart is not the most talented offensive player uh, on the floor right now, but he's giving you consistent offense because he just understands how to play the game. And Jalen has an entire defense trying to shut him down. He's still getting decent shots for himself and others. That's just solid basketball. That's just a solid floor game. Having solid guys like that mentally can help you in situations like this where the pressure the pressure is on the Cavs to win game five, 100%. But after game five, the pressure is squarely on the Knicks for the rest of the series. And game five is going to be a hard game to win. The Knicks got, the Knicks got a stomach that first blow in the first quarter where they're going to come out and try to blow you out. And then after everything settles down, if they're able to fight that off, now it's going to be about whatever adjustments J.B. Rickerstaff made there are a lot of things that Cleveland was doing that was getting them good shots, and they're going to stick to that. You're going to see a lot more of – you saw J.B. Bickerstaff talk about the Garland screen action that they were using to begin the third quarter that resulted in a bunch of easy shots for the Cavs and how they kind of went away from it. They kind of went away from it because the Knicks called timeout and they adjusted, number one. Number two, they came out and started scoring more after the timeout because the Knicks weren't scoring consistently, so it was easy for Garland to come down court. And I talk about this all the time, attacking and obviously transition, but secondary transition is so underrated in the NBA. You want to get teams before they are solid in their footing you want to get them in a, in a situation where they're backpedaling and trying to communicate and match up. You want to constantly attack. That's what Sacramento does. Now, you can't, you know, in the middle of the season, decide that's how you're going to play. I shouldn't say in the middle of the season. In the middle of the playoffs, decide that's what you're going to be doing. Uh, apparently. I've heard NBA coaches and, and players talk about that all the time. You, you're not going to all of a sudden become a, a running team like the Sacramento Kings if you were – almost in the, in the last uh, five, ten, ten teams in the league in pace. Now, all of a sudden, not going to you know play a whole different game come playoff time. But I do think, and that's the same for the Cavs, too. The Cavs are dead last of pace, I believe. You know, double-check, they were close to it. So the Cavs, instinctively, every play playing with pace is an adjustment that's going to kind of 
be inconsistent for them as the game goes on because that's just not the natural way that they play. They're going to play the natural way. They're going to revert to the mean at some point because it takes a lot of discipline to completely play a different way than you were all season long. So I think that's kind of what happened to them again. But the Knicks started scoring, so it kind of took away that attacking and secondary transition aspect out of it. So once the Knicks, once you're once you're taking the ball out from out of bounds every play, you know it kind of hurts that whole pacing thing because now you're racing up court. The whole defense is waiting for you. It's it's a whole different animal. So a lot of what they were doing offensively was predicated on the Knicks not scoring on their end. So the Knicks are more consistent offensively. It can be the best defense for them as well because it takes away that pace game that the Cavs want to play. And the Cavs are the best defensive team in the league, so it's going to be tough regardless. But that's what the Knicks are going to contend with in that first quarter in Game 5 is their defense is going to be off the charts. And Knicks going to might, might start missing shots. And the Cavs are going to come down and it's going to be the top of that third quarter in the first quarter. So the Knicks are going to be shaking on their pick-and-roll defense for a myriad of reasons, and I'll go into it in a minute. The best defense that they can have for their pick and roll, for their for the pick and roll that um, the Cavs are going to be running at them, the best defense they can have is to actually be consistent offensively and make them take the ball out of bounds. So you can set your defense and, and give yourself a chance at least. That's the best defense that they can have. Outside of that, Mitchell Robinson has been so important in this series and how he reads the guards coming off those screens he he's the one that's doing most of the work there when Brunson's on the ball Brunson having to guard Garland off those screens has been murder Brunson gets stuck on those screens very easily he tries his best but he does not navigate those screens very well at all and because the Knicks take Brunson off the ball a lot against screen heavy teams he doesn't really have the rhythm defensively that he needs to have knowing when to go under the screen. Like, Garland will burn you if you go under the screen, absolutely. But he's not – like, he's got to be hot. You know, he's a very efficient shooter. But if they're going to put the ball in his hands and have him start the game off attacking off screens, which I'm pretty sure you're going to see in this game, if you go under a couple times, I think you might throw him off. But Brunson being the primary defender on your screen attack is just not – is not ideal, but the Knicks don't really have a lot of options in that starting lineup. They've had, they've had uh, RJ Barrett guarding it, and I think you know he hasn't done a terrible job. He hasn't done a terrible job, but it really falls down on Mitch. Mitch has to he has the responsibility of slowing the guard down and getting back to the big and making those defensive plays, and it also helps when the Knicks help off the corners. And when they help off the corners, they give up a lot of corner threes, which has been a problem. They give up a ton of those. They give they have to be a little bit more disciplined with how they dig and 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 releasing, coming off the dig and getting back to the corner quicker. They have to be better at that. Randall was kind of slow on that in this game. If they do that, then they can kind of help Brunson out or whoever's on the ball guarding those screens and help Mitch out and because the corner shooters have not been lights out, even though Levert has been great and Osmond is always capable. Coral can knock down one every now and then. The Knicks have to rush those shooters at the same time. They don't want to give them wide open looks the whole night. So the Cavs have been getting some decent looks in these last two games and they have not knocked them down. And that's like pretty much on brand for them. So it's that's one of their shortcomings. They're not knocked down shooters across the board. So it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that's going to turn around, but with the season on the line and on the road, you have to assume that they're going to make a few more of them. So the Knicks just have to, they have to just be a little bit cleaner in how they help and rotate, et cetera, because, because Brunson has been a negative on the ball defensively. And I think the more they can take Brunson off the ball and put him and maybe put him in those weak side corners, like you got a couple the Knicks got a couple deflections when he was off the ball. He was playing off the weak side corner. He got a nice steal when they were trying to drop the ball off to, I think it was Mobley at the time. He got a nice steal coming off the corner. He's a bright player. It's not like it's a lack of effort thing defensively. He just doesn't, doesn't have the, the build and, and technique and quickness 
to get around those screens, especially Jared Allen, who sets pretty good ones. That's his shortcoming. But off the ball, he's attentive. He's an attentive defender. Something you know, he screws up like a lot of people, but he's an attentive defender, especially here in these playoffs. Maybe more so than he was in a regular season. And I think he can make some plays playing that weak side corner um, when you do take him off the ball. But if they and, and Barrett has not been great on screens either. They got Barrett at the end of the game. Garland got a wide open corner three, which he knocked down, by the way which is a danger for the Knicks because he's a very efficient shooter and he's, he can get a lot of clean looks against his defense. But Barrett was guarding Garland and he got, he got caught on off the ball screen set by Jared Allen and Mitchell Robinson wasn't really paying attention, but it really is really one of those things where Mitchell should have been paying attention because of the situation. You don't want to give that three up, but if that play was in the middle of the game, if Mitchell had to, uh, close out as hard as he needed to close out to get to Garland on that play, then they're going to get layups all day long because Jared Allen would have been wide open as soon as Mitchell stepped up. So Barrett is not great coming off of screens either. So it's really a hole defensively in the lineup for the Knicks because because usually Quentin Grimes, who's obviously hurt right now, and we'll talk about that in a minute as well, Quinn Grimes usually guards the point of attack guy, the screen guy, et cetera. And there's usually someone that they can hide Brunson on. And in this series, there kind of isn't. Obviously, when Osmond and, and Okoro in the game, are in the game, they can put Brunson on them. Uh, Osmond, not, not necessarily super impactful from three in the series right now. He's decent. You don't want to give him a bunch of shots. You don't want to let him get hot, but he's not a high octane shooter, but he does have a significant height advantage on Brunson. If Brunson has to rotate to him, he's he's not going to even be bothered by his contest. A lot of people are not bothered by Brunson's contest at all in general. And Okoro, of course, he's not going to do a whole lot so that, it's nice to be able to hide Brunson on Okoro, but that's why Okoro's not playing a lot because the Cavs want to hunt Brunson, and uh, you can't do that when Okoro's on the floor. When Levert's on the floor, Levert can score on Brunson at will. And you saw that you saw that a lot in a few of these games, but in game four, you saw the Cavs have, some again, some schematic issues where Brunson will be on Levert and Levert will call for a screen. Like, what are you calling for a screen for? You got the matchup you want. I hate that. When you you got the matchup you want, stop calling for a screen. If they switch the screen, sometimes sometimes the screener is bringing a better defender for you, so they can switch it, and now you're gonna have a better defender on you. You had a mismatch, so what are you calling for a screen for? And maybe the other guy who set the screen, maybe his matchup is is decent, and then you'll pass it to him. But you had a matchup that you wanted. Levert, you can attack Brunson, and attack him. So I think that's something you're going to see a lot more from the Cavs. You're going to see them playing with a lot more pace. You're going to see them hunting Brunson a whole lot more in this series. And again, the best defense the Knicks can offer, of course, there are some adjustments they can make defensively. They can blitz Garland the way they blitz in Donovan. Uh, But that'll really open up the floor for Donovan. When that ball finds Donovan, it's going to be a problem. I think that's one of the reasons why they don't blitz Garland. It's because they don't want the ball to find Donovan Mitchell on the weak side with a rotating defense. A screen-centric offense is, is essentially something the Knicks have faced all year long against every, pretty much every team in the league. So their base defense, they're just going to have to they – they kind of play it like, hey, sometimes they're going to score, and, but most of the time they're not. That's kind of how they play an effective screen-centric Team and most screen centric teams have at least have at least three shooters around a ball handler, whereas the Cavs don't. So that, in a lot of ways, helps the Knicks in the paint when Garland comes downhill, and that's it's been kind of uneven. Sometimes Garland has gotten hot and able to find open people. Same thing with Donovan come downhill; he was able to find open people under the basket. Whereas the Knicks should have plenty of people. They should have at least two people at any given time, either either chasing down the play or or down there to help because Evan Mobley's on the floor. And when you have Jared Allen and Evan Mobley on the floor, someone should be around the paint just a little bit more, and it shouldn't have to be someone helping off a shooter. 
That's just being attentive. And that falls on Julius Randle, who's on the floor a lot, and hasn't necessarily been Now, because Garland's coming downhill so fast, sometimes that gets guys on their heels, and it's easier it's, it's easier for you to find an open guy because guys are having to scramble as opposed to being able to set themselves defensively because you slowed them down a little bit coming off those screens. That's something the Knicks have not been able to do with Garland as consistently as they would like. And um, as long as they don't do that, it'll be a little bit harder for them to stop the layups that are coming from Garland's penetration. But for the most part, they've done a decent job. Obviously, the Cavs aren't scoring a ton of points. But to make to, to hammer this home, some of that is because they go away from what was successful for them. They were successful playing with pace. And they stopped playing with pace at some point in that third quarter and started getting bogged down in their half court again which runs into runs into some trouble because the Knicks defense is pretty good and you don't have a lot of spacing. You're going to score but you're not going to score quite a much, quite a, enough to win the game if the Knicks if the Knicks can find consistent offense, which is what they've been able to do in these last two games. And the Knicks not finding consistent offense is could be what simply turns this series around. So the importance at this point for the Knicks, the onus is on these guys like Randall and IQ and RJ to continue playing as well as he has been to play better offensively because that wins the series. You're not going to be able to hold them down because they have, they have Garland who is nasty off those screens and all they need is a tweak here and there. And they're going to get a few more good shots than they've been getting. And they've been getting good shots and not knocking them down. So they're either going to knock down the shots that they've been getting and, and or they're going to get a few more good shots because they're going to keep refining how they attack. Not to mention they have a Donovan Mitchell on the other side who is now and supremely disappointed in himself because he didn't play, he didn't show up for his team in these two games the way he wanted to. And he's going to come to Cleveland wanting to save his season and save his own pride. And he's going to give you every single thing he has. And that could be a bad thing for the Cavs, too, because you saw that in game one, and the Knicks won that game because it kept Garland out, out of the game. It kept him from getting in rhythm, which in turn kept the rest of the team getting from getting in rhythm. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you now, I think the Cavs are going to play with pace this whole game, and playing with pace is going to get to find Donovan Mitchell's hands more than in these last three games. Okay, the Knicks are going to have to keep adjusting and in those defensive rotations, that ball is going to find Donovan Mitchell and the Knicks are not going to be able to trap him. He's going to be able to go one-on-one against whoever's guarding him. And I just don't think Donovan Mitchell is going to get stopped, especially without Quentin Grimes. I don't think he's going to get stopped enough 1v1 if you're having trouble guarding Garland on the screen and roll and you have to trap because they're going to get good shots out of that without Donovan Mitchell, and then if the ball finds Donovan Mitchell and you have Donovan Mitchell who, who wants to make up for the last two games and is basically in tears because he left his team, let his team down in game four, you don't want Donovan Mitchell catching the ball on the weak side without solid help waiting for him with this kind of attitude. You just, you're going to have to score points. So now that brings us to number one, R.J. Barrett who has stepped up after getting murdered for a week because of his poor play. He stepped up big time. I said it a million times. I said it before the series, right? I said, or after game one, I said that R.J. Barrett was built for this city. I've always believed that. Despite his flaws, which I'll acknowledge with the best of them, he's built for this city, and I think he's a hard worker. But the way you prove that is in the playoffs. And we now have two games now. There's two games where he was bad and two games where he was good. It's real It's real easy to play at home. So I'm going to keep challenging RJ. It's real easy. Now, let's go do this on the road. I will give Monica McNutt credit. I saw her say something about RJ, being, RJ Barrett being a very cerebral player. And sometimes he gets in his own way. And I've seen that a million times in NBA players, including one of the greats in LeBron James. But she believes that R.J. Barrett, because every night, and this is true, and it's something that most people who don't watch the Knicks 
don't understand and even people who do watch the Knicks don't understand. R.J. Barrett does not get consistent opportunities, good opportunities. He takes a lot of shots, which, again, that's a demerit. You don't you don't get a pass for taking a lot of shots and a lot of those shots being bad shots and you don't make them. But he doesn't get a lot of consistent opportunities so he can read how each team is playing him and adjust throughout the game. That's what Julius Randle gets. That's what Brunson gets. But R.J. doesn't get that. The ball finds R.J. on the weak side, and he basically you either shoot it or you attack a hard closeout. You, po- you know, a lot of times his attack attacking a hard closeout just turns into him, you know, backing someone down because he can't get by them. Which again, it's you know, every every player has their flaws. But R.J. Barrett does not get an opportunity to just okay, how you, how is this team playing me? They're doing this, that, and other. Okay, this is how I should attack it. I mean, and if I didn't if I didn't figure it out today, I can go home and figure it out and I'll come back in two days and play them and I'll have a better idea of what to do against this team because you're playing a different team. So RJ Barrett against a good defensive team, and and again, this is partly because of his skill set. He has to be a little bit more judicious about how he attacks each team. Now, of course, you've got to hit a jump shot. But in a, in a player who is most effective right now getting to the basket and scoring in the paint against one of the better te- defensive teams in the league and two huge, long defenders in the paint, yeah, you got to be a little bit judicious about how you attack down there. And after, and her point was that after playing a few games that he started to figure out where where his opportunities are. And then give Thibodeau credit because they started doing a lot of actions that got R.J. Barrett going downhill and playing to his strengths and really focusing on him offensively in ways that they really didn't do in the regular season, which, again, is a credit to them making an adjustment because the Knicks have had a pretty vanilla offense all year long and having the playoffs too. But those little wrinkles have given him – opportunities to get to the front of the rim and and finish and get to the line. And he should have been at the line a few more times. So you give RJ credit because there was a lot of pressure on him. He was really about to lose the city. He's sitting on a fresh contract. He was very, very close to being in an untradeable situation because he wasn't playing to his contract. Seeing him step up in these, in these past two games, I'm happy for the kid. I'm happy for the team. But he has to be consistent. It has to be the same thing in game five. But give him credit because we definitely criticized him. So give him credit for stepping up in the biggest spots of the season. Now, I'm going to start off by saying Julius is coming back from an injury. His ankle injury, you know he missed the last few games of the season. You know he wasn't even able to practice before the playoffs. So give Julius a little bit of a pass on his offensive contribution. Where I can't give Julius a pass is like his attitude on the court. Is It's like Julius is like Bruce Banner, Rage Monster Hulk, and Professor Hulk. You were getting Bruce Banner last night. And you can't afford to have Bruce Banner when you're in the playoffs, the Knicks are winning with Julius Randle, 25 points per game, 10 rebounds, four assists, 46% from the field, not playing well, not playing well on either side of the floor. There were multiple possessions where because he wasn't hustling and because he wasn't engaged, the Cavs got buckets. That it drives me crazy. And we talk about this all the time. I just don't understand why he gets to these places where his effort is not where it needs to be. And I know he's an effort player. And the thing with him is I think that Julius, in in an attempt to not go berserk on his own team, in an attempt to not go to Rage Monster Hulk, where he's mad at everybody, the referees, his teammates, everybody but the other team, he calms himself down a little too much. He's a lit, he's not he's not fully engaged emotionally with the proper level of intensity in the game because he's trying to keep his cool and I think that hurts the Knicks. I've seen that not necessarily 
entire games very often throughout the year, but I talked about it throughout the year. He would do it in inside the game. He would do it for stretches of games. Stretches, I'm sorry, stretches inside of the game. And then he would kind of turn it on at certain points. But the Knicks need him to not be Bruce Banner in this playoff game. They need you to be Professor Hulk. They need you to be the Hulk that is mad at the other team and is playing like nobody can guard him and mad at they mad at the fact that they even think now I understand this ankle injury, he might not be playing with that level of confidence. I get it. And the Knicks are also not catering to him on the offensive end, which is why I think he's a little pouty and which is why I think he's a little Bruce Bannerish, which pisses me off. It's not all about you. And for somebody who has a reputation inside of the locker room for being a good teammate and being unselfish, it just drives me crazy when you see blatant selfish activity on the floor. Okay. He's, it's like he's being passive aggressive <laughs> with his selfishness. He's he's mad and pouty that he's not getting the ball the way he wants and getting able to being able to do the things that he wants. And when he does get the ball, the offense isn't catering to him in terms of how the players are positioned around him. They're not doing the things that they want him to do because there's no rhythm when he has the ball because he ain't been there. And when he's been there, they haven't necessarily. So I understand if your offense is not there, but you gotta have that defensive intensity the entire game and. Him trying to manage the rage monster is just, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know why it's hard for him to find the middle ground. It seemed like he was about to, and he came out in the third quarter. It seemed like he was about to. You saw him getting a little, little frustrated. He hit a shot on Evan Mobley, and then he got, he had a nice and one opportunity. He got to the line a couple times. You saw him starting to liven up. You know, everybody's not a body language um, expert, but we can see the difference. Like You can see it. A lot of you irrational Randall defenders, the ones who were trying to say that Randall wasn't a problem last year, even though Randall has come out and said he was a problem last year. You don't see the difference in his body language after – after a couple nice offensive plays and he got to the free throw line in that third quarter. And now he came out of the game right at the time that he was getting lit and never made it back because OB top and played well. And this is another story in this game. No matter how well OB top and play plays, no matter how well Randall or how poorly Randall plays, OB top and always comes out the game for Randall at the end of the game. And you saw in this game, that's not what happened. You saw this happen to Brunson too. Earlier, like the last few weeks of the season, you saw this happen to Brunson too. And this is how you coach. And listen, throughout the year, sometimes Randall didn't need to come back in the game. I think Randall did need to come back in the game a lot more than a lot of these OB supporters want to say. But there are some games where Randall didn't need to come back in the game. OB was playing well. The unit on the floor was playing well. Stick with him. It was a tough decision because you didn't know which Randall you were going to get. And he wasn't in any kind of rhythm. And you throw him in a game like that, you couldn't have put him back in the game before like the five-minute mark because the Knicks were definitely playing too well for him to come out of the game, for for Obi to come out of the game at that point. Now you're putting him back in crunch time. He ain't played all this time and and wasn't really in a rhythm. It would have been unfair. Really, as much as he wanted to play, it would have been unfair to throw him in that spot. And it's definitely unfair to Obi, and you're sending a message to your team like, hey, winning isn't as important as me managing the ego of Julius Randle. That's what you're saying. Because, yes, it's a tough call, but when you're playing well in this important game, why would you take out the players that are playing well? That doesn't make any sense. And for all of you people telling me that Randle's not being pouty, he left without talking to the media. If he was perfectly fine with it, he would have talked to the media like, hey, I get it. I got to be better next game. Just, just say that, even if you didn't mean it. But you all pouty. You don't want to talk to nobody. Like, come on, man. Get your, get, us, get yourself together. What are you here to do? Now, I understand that you want to win, but I think Julius Randle is one of those I want to win, but I got to win my way type thing, type guys. And everything else is just passive aggressive. Yeah, I'll be a good teammate. And this is what a good teammate looks like. It looks like me being Bruce Banner and being passive. And okay, yeah, yeah, nice play, blah, blah, blah. Nah, man. Give it all you got. You watching these playoffs, you seeing guys give blood, sweat, and tears on the floor 
including your teammates, and you know you got a whole nother gear and you're not there yet because you just don't feel rhythm and you're not getting the ball enough. And come on, man. And you're wondering why everybody's not as supportive of you as they are of some of the other teammates. It's because they can't see your effort. They can't see how hard you try. You came back from an injury that some guys would still be sitting out with and I and everyone not everyone understands it, but I get it and, and a lot of your coaches get it, your teammates get it. You didn't practice, you didn't you weren't able to get back in shape. Like everybody understands that part of it. But when you're on the floor, man, you gotta play, you gotta give it all you got. And that that chase down block he had on Donovan in that third quarter, it was huge. It was huge. And I'm telling you, in that third quarter, he was starting to get back into it. So it was unfortunate that he 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 had to come out. You know, you had to get your your rest. But Obi Obi picked up the slack anyway. Obi was playing well anyway, and you saw him turn it up, and you want him to come out in his game five and have that kind of attitude to start the game. Because Julius Randle being Julius Randle, I don't care if Evan Mobley's on him or not, Julius Randle just being a force, and even if he's not the great 46% Julius Randle, just being a force is a factor. They got to guard him. They got to guard him. And this is where the Knicks have a little bit, a little bit of of an advantage, uh, breathing room. They're not, they're not getting enough of a contribution in the first couple of games. They didn't get it from RJ, but they're not getting enough contribution from Randall, who we discussed, but also IQ and Grimes. Grimes being out, of course, but in the first two games and the first half of game, most of the first half of game three, not enough offense from from him. Well, of course, they need him. They they didn't miss him in game four. The second half of game three didn't seem like they missed him, but they missed. They they will miss him, and they miss what he can do. Definitely want to see him back on the court. You don't want to forget about what he's capable of just because he missed a couple of games and didn't, didn't play well in a couple of games. So you need him back, and when he's back, you need his contribution. But this focus is on IQ now. I mean... I respect the fact that IQ is not forcing it. They're taking away a lot of the things that IQ likes to do. For example, IQ goes right a lot. And they seem to be loading up when he goes right, not giving him much of anything. So the the remedy to that, and I've talked about it off and on all year long, is to keep IQ off the ball a little bit more. And it helps when Josh Hart is on the floor with him. It helps when Brunson's on the floor with him. And then that way you can get him more shots. So he's gotten couple looks, they're not stupid and not leaving him open, and he hasn't capitalized. You need him to capitalize. You can't have a guy that had the talk that IQ had all year long, and then now he's in the playoffs and he's barely putting any, any, any points on the board. Now his floor game is impactful for the Knicks. We all know it. His net rating is, is pristine almost every single night, but you know what? Okoro's net rating with the Cavaliers is pretty decent, but Okoro, the Cavaliers sometimes deem him unplayable. They're not playing him 40 minutes a game because he's become a hole in their minds. He's become a hole for them offensively. He makes their offense worse, less less prolific because he can't give them what they need. Now, I'm not putting... IQ in Okoro's category. We know what IQ can do. But when they render you, you know, feckless on, on offense, you're not doing anything. When the Knicks have counted on your offense for most of the year and they counted on you being the catalyst offensively most of the year, it's hurting the team. It's it's literally the difference between the Knicks winning by five points, ten points. And 20 points in this series. It's IQ and his lack of production. Like, if IQ was playing like IQ, the Knicks would have, I mean, I'm not going to say the Cavs wouldn't have won any games, but these games would not be close. Like, can you understand that? Like, these games would not be close if IQ was, is really IQ. So when y'all talk about his net rating, I, I get it, but you don't think there's a difference between IQ not putting any points on the board and not creating any offense and IQ giving you 15 points on 50% shooting and 40% from three? <laughs> like, you don't, you don't think there's a difference? 
These games are cakewalks. The Cavs are trying to come back from 15, 17 point deficits every game if IQ is IQ. That's not necessarily true of Randall because Randall isn't always there defensively. So sometimes Randall not making the right pass, Randall turning ball over, and Randall not being uh, not playing with the proper intensity and focus defensively can give up as much as he gives. That's not the case with IQ. He's always locked in defensively. He's communicating. He makes it. He makes the Knicks a better defensive team when he's on the floor. Not only because he's a better individual defender defender than the person he's usually replacing, which is R.J. Barrett and or and or Julius Brunson, uh, not Julius Brunson, Jalen Brunson. Obviously, sometimes he replaces Grimes, and that's you know that's not necessarily an upgrade. But when he's in there with Grimes, he's replacing an inferior defensive player, and he's playing against second units. The Knicks are exponentially better when he's on the floor defensively. So if if he makes the offense click, and one thing he could do in this series is he can push the pace. That's one thing that he's not you don't see a lot of. And again, this is the playoffs. It's not a regular season. And, and Cleveland gets paid too, and they're one of the better defend, defensive teams in the league. But the pace isn't necessarily any faster when he's in the game. So he's not necessarily putting pressure on the Cavs when he has the ball, when he's leading the way. But defensively, he can he's really giving the Knicks a chance to build on whatever good they did before he got in the game. And offensively, that's usually an advantage for the Knicks, what he can bring and what he does to that second unit versus the other team's second unit. And in this case, the Cavs' second unit is trash. So an IQ, an average IQ from December 20th on, the way this series is gone, it puts the series away. It puts the series away. And just to hammer home, hammer home the point as to why it's even more important than Julius Randle is because Julius Randle, like I said, he gives up sometimes, not directly, but through decision-making, through lack of intensity, lack of rotations, some of that stuff that he does through stretches of the game, like I said, I've made the point several times, stretches of games, not necessarily entire games, some of that stuff gives back some of his offense. Some of it gives back some of his offense. IQ makes the entire defense better. He communicates. He If you watch IQ after a made basket or a transition, even – he will point out who has who. He'll point out switches. He communicates. His rotations are just immaculate. I can't say enough about what he does defensively. You just can't. So just a little bit of offense and the Knicks blow. They, they, they run away with this. They run away with this. This show is one kind of long. I get it. It's two games. You got to give me a break. Make sure the NBA season's coming to a close, but sportsethos.com covers all the sports. Make sure you check out the website. Check out at sportsethos on Twitter, at ethosnicks. We'll be back at it. Looking forward to game five. Some of these stories floating around. Some of you confident Nick fans getting a little too cocky out here. But don't worry about it. The players are focused. Thank God for Jalen Brunson. Thank God for Josh Hart. Thank God for Jay Wright and Villanova. Thank God for that man. But listen, nothing's been done yet, but enjoy it. You're a Nick fan, enjoy it. These things don't happen too often. You're shutting a lot of people up right now, but you got to get the job done. Finish it. Finish it. Until next time. <laughs>